Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. To Samuel chapter 23, what Julie read to us was, if you like, the first installment from the Samuel saga, the prayer, the song of Hannah, which set everything up. If you remember, the, the book of Samuel, splitted our Bibles into one and two Samuel, began with Hannah praying to God, asking for a child, um, receiving that child Samuel, offering him back in service to God. Um, in the tabernacle, and then praying that prayer, singing that song. And if you were listening to it, it it was kind of like a a vision of an ideal world, wasn't it? Where God's authority, God's goodness, God's justice are all felt and known by everybody. And she finished up the song, peculiarly at the time, because Israel didn't have a king, praying, singing about a king who had come, who would be ruling and reigning. So that was kind of the scene, the picture for the whole book, um, a picture of what we might be anticipating to find in the pages and in the stories as we've gone through. And in many respects, we have. We've seen Israel get a king, a pretty poor king in the first instance, in Saul, good in certain uh, military ways, but bad, very bad in others. Then God's chosen king, David, who, fantastic in many ways, but utterly appalling in many others. We've seen stories of justice for people. We've seen stories of incredible injustice for people. And we're getting near the end, and I don't know about you, but I like stories to be resolved. I like the idea, like a Christmas present that's been wrapped for free um, by somebody in our church, the bow being tied and finished off, and it being neat, and it being finished and it being packaged and sent off with love. So 2 Samuel, chapter 4, when I read this, not trying to force you at all, but when I read this, I'm expecting to have the story resolved. We're going to read the whole chapter, 25 verses. Um, Yeah, there's one word that sprung to my mind this week as I was studying this, and I'm going to share it in a second. But see, see, see what comes to mind for you as we look for the bow on this package. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred thousand times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aroah, south of the town of Gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazza. They went to Gilead and the region of Tahatim Hodeshi, and on to Dan Jan and around towards Sidon. 
Then they went towards the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide, how should I answer the one who sent me? David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aroah the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aranwa said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so that I can build an altar to the lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. Here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all of this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. I wonder, do you think that that feels like the story has been tied off with a nice, neat little bow? Um, thank you, Pauline. Pauline agrees with me. No, it feels like a really unfinished story. Um, the word that came to my mind as I was reading and prepping for this this week was, why? So many times in that story, I was just left scratching my head, and I'm 99.9% .9 certain that same is true for you. Let me just run through a couple of, the, couple of the whys that I had this week. Why, verse 1, 
does the Lord's anger burn against Israel. That's how the story starts, and there's no explanation. So even before we get into all of the details, we're asking, why? Why does it say that God is the one who stirs David up? What David goes on to do apparently is wrong, but if, if you look there at the start, it says that David stirred, uh, the, the Lord stirred David up to do this thing. Why is this thing, the census, so wrong? Did that jump out at anybody? Counting the people. What's wrong with that? Why? Why, when David himself has decided, yes, what I've done is wrong, confesses it before God has told him it was wrong or, or sent any judgment, does God give David the choice of what the punishment, the repercussions are going to be? That's weird, isn't it? That's properly weird. Right, there's going to be consequences, but you get to decide. I can't think off the top of my head any other place in Scripture where that occurs. Why, when the judgment starts, does God stop? Why does God relent at Jerusalem? Why does he stop there? Why does it say in that closing section, one, that God decided to stop, two, that after David prayed, God stopped, and three, that after the sacrifice was offered, God stopped? Like, they feel kind of contradictory and out of kilter and just like, what's going on? When did the plague stop? You'll also notice that it said that the plague carried on until the designated time. So it had already stopped in that sense. Why? Why is the answer to all of this for David to go and build an altar somewhere other than the tabernacle? Remember, David has brought the ark up to Jerusalem. Why all of a sudden is there a new place that an offering should be made? That's generally considered a really horrendous thing to do. Why is that the bow on the end of the story of Samuel? Like, how does that wrap up anything to do with Hannah's prayer and the journey that we've been going on? Why? I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not going to answer any of those whys this morning. But I think they are an opportunity for us to see, to learn, and to think about how we engage with the Bible when the question of why comes up and we don't have answers. I think when we are presented with so many whys, or maybe just one why in a text where the answer isn't clearly given, we have a choice. A choice between doing one of three things. The first option we have, coming to something like that, is to go, do you know what? I haven't got a clue what's going on. More to the point, I don't really like what's going on. And it's not giving me sufficient data with which, for me, I can become comfortable with what's going on. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to like set it aside and ignore it. Or I'm going to say I don't believe it. That that part of the Bible is just an icky part of the Bible where people are doing things that I don't know why they're doing it and I don't understand why they're doing it. God is doing things I don't understand and I just don't want to deal with it, so I'm going to chuck it over there. That's choice number one. We can totally do that, okay? 
It says that the Lord's anger burned against the people. Why? I don't know. I don't like the idea of that. I don't like where my thinking might lead me if I follow it. So I'm just going to punt it away and say, this is the choice. Done with it. Not a part of my Bible. We could do that. You can guess that I don't think that's the best way to deal with it. The second choice that we have is to go hunting around Hunting around in the scriptures, but hunting around in the dustier books on our bookshelves, the um, podcasts from the darker corners of the interweb, where we can find out people who have a special insight. They've cracked the Hebraic code or whatever it is, and they know what the answer to all of our whys. I can tell you why the Lord's anger was burning. I can tell you why this happened. I can tell you why that happened. And we can get really confident and really full of ourselves. And we can say, anybody who doesn't know that, A, is a plonker. And if they disagree with me, then they're evil. Because I know why. And I'm 100% certain of it. And I have to have every T crossed and every I dotted and every lowercase J with a little dot and a heart on top of it as well. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with you, but I'm brilliant because I've got it all figured out. Do you know what? As I've been reading this week, I feel like I've got an answer to virtually all of my whys. I'm so desperate to tell you just to make sure you're not getting there. But we don't know. The text doesn't tell us why. The third choice, which I think is generally in life the better road to travel along, and especially when we're handling our Bibles and we come into texts that don't tell us why. This is different to us not being able to understand why and having work to do. They don't tell us why. The third choice is to chill out. Chill out. Don't get so stressed about it. Why does it bother us so much that it doesn't tell us? There's plenty of stuff in the text that it does tell us, and we can learn from what it does say, and yet we are so prone to be distracted by the information that is missing, aren't we? Here's the fact of the matter. Israel had obviously done something that justified the Lord's anger being kindled against them. We don't need to know what they did. That's just what was happening. Chill out. Don't even try and answer it, but don't ignore it. Look at the text, try and figure out, well, what is included and what are we trying to learn? What are we being taught? Why does God stop at Jerusalem? Well, I'm sure, look, we can get our heads together and we can come up with a really good answer about why there, well, that was the line and he wasn't going to cross because there's something special going on here and there. Do you know what? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. But there is plenty that it does say and we need to look at that and learn. So what are we told? I can't remember what order my slides come in. So I'm not sure. Aled, I've gone off anyway, so it's not working. Where I am on the screen. Oh, oh uh, miles ahead. Right. Uh, don't look at them. Blank. Okay, that's fine. Can you guess what my final points are? Um, well, I mean, look, there's a couple of things that we are clearly told, right? That they have done something, and God demands justice. Justice. That was one of the things that Hannah was contemplating. That was one of the things that Hannah desired in her life when she asked for a son. That is one of the things that Hannah was looking forward to as she prayed in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we see here, right at the end of the book, that God is a God of justice. We don't need to know 
100% what's going on. We just need to know that God is a God who demands justice. We're told that God is going to use David in two ways. Number one, to bring about that justice against the people. And number two, as a means to have a rescue for the people. And if you've got eyes to see it and ears to hear, that should sound very, very familiar to us. The idea of one person being used to bring justice against all people, but also that one person being the one through whom rescue and restoration are found. I'm not going to labor that point. That's there for us to see. I think the whole sweep of the story shows us, this is where the thing, we do know that God desires peace and life, not punishment and death. That though he is a God of justice, he wants to find a way for there to be peace and life for his people. And a couple of verses should undoubtedly jump out at us. Verse 10, the fact that David sees his sin before God even points it out to him. I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. One um, commentary I read said this about David, that what we see in him in this story is that he fears God more than anyone else. And yet, he puts his trust in God more than anyone else. That somehow he sees something about God in this whole affair that he is someone to be feared but also someone to be completely trusted. He admits his guilt, and it's to the one who is going to punish him that he flees. Verse 17, we see this kind of foreshadowing of Jesus, the one who says, um, I have wronged, I have sinned, let the blame, let the punishment fall on me. Like One of the things that we are aware that this punishment is not just because of what David has done in the census, this punishment starts all the way in verse 1 because the people had sinned, because the people had angered the Lord. And David says, there is sin out there, how certain he was of this being related to others or just himself. But there's a desire for the punishment to fall on him and him alone. And then verse 24 jumps out. I insist on paying for it, everything that's going to be offered to God. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David sees and he recognizes that if this is worship, if this is an offering from him, then it's going to have a cost associated with it. And I want us just to pull a couple of threads together at the conclusion of the Samuel story. Thinking about Hannah at the start we probably haven't mentioned enough as we've gone through, thinking about David in many respects right the way through, thinking especially about this story and beyond a little bit. How is this the conclusion of the story, even if it does leave us with loose ends? Hannah's prophetic prayer of praise, it was aspirational. It was a picture of what could be and what God said was going to be. It's the God that she encountered and it's the God that she expected to see more fully. And we come to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and this is something we've massively got to recognize, that we're not there yet. What she saw 
Even though we can pinpoint a few fulfillments, even though we can say, well, look, there is a king on the throne. God's own king, David, is there. The greatest king we know in all of history. We're not where she saw all the way back at the start. Does that make sense? We're not there yet. And so that first thing, Al, if you can give me the first one, that I want us, and I think has been a lesson from the whole book, is that it's about patience. It's about patience. Patience is something which we probably lack in abundance. Hannah was looking forward. She had to be patient as she waited for God's grace and justice in her life. She looked forward to something more. As we've been reading, there have been plenty of uh, examples of patience. David having been anointed, needing to be patient to be king. Um, Patience, waiting for certain situations to be resolved. And even getting to the end of this story, we need to be patient in having our questions answered. Patient in having kind of like all the loose ends tied up. But in our lives, I think, we need to learn patience because we are all works in progress. Because we can think of things, can't we, where God has promised, God has said, you shall be, you shall have. And we think, well, I'm not. I don't. Like, there's a gap between what we are expecting and what we experience. There's a gap between what Hannah prayed and like where they'd come by the end of 2 Samuel chapter 24. And that's because God's plan works itself out in a longer, fuller way than we understand. We are works in progress. One of the things that we can learn to do while we're waiting is to appreciate how far we've come. The book of Samuel began in a time, not when there was a king, but when the judges ruled. And we went through the book of Judges about three years ago. And it was probably equal to, if not greater, in terms of its scandal and horrendousness to some of the stories we've read here. It was an awful time. The description was there was no king and everyone did as they pleased, no matter what the cost to anybody else lawlessness, idolatry, like horrendous treatment of everyone. And we might get to the close of 1 and 2 Samuel and think, well, we're not at that place that Hannah looked for, but we can see just how far we've come. Even with those isolated stories of David sinning and people in David's family and in his court sinning, we still get things like, David was a king who ruled, and there was justice and righteousness for everyone. We still get pictures like the kindness that he showed to people when he was coming back to Jerusalem, who certainly didn't deserve it. We've come a long way. We're not there yet, but we can see and marvel and wonder at how far we all have come already. And that should be the case in our lives too. You know, we're called perfect and righteous and blameless Children of God, fully accepted, forgiven, redeemed. You know, there's this fruit of the Spirit that's supposed to be in our lives. And we say, oh, Lord, I don't really see it. I feel like those things maybe weren't true because I still feel lonely. I still feel rejected in many senses. I'm still not entirely sure I'm accepted by you. I still feel guilty. I certainly fall short. 
I certainly do not show patience with other people. And yet, one of the things we can do in that interim period is to look how far we've come. If you are trusting in Jesus, then I guarantee you a change has taken place. A change has taken place. You are probably the one least well-placed to see that change. Do you know what's a really good practice? (laughs) Is listening to other people talk about you is listening to other people talk about how you have changed. Again, this is totally flipping on our head what we normally do. We like to talk about ourselves. Um, Other people will see things in you that have started, that have stopped, that you just weren't aware of. Part of what we can do is we're patiently waiting for God to finish the work that he has started in us through Christ, is to see, is to count, is to check just how far we've come. That's the first point. It's a P. Be excited. There's going to be quite a few P's coming up. Um, No, patience. Oh, no. Prayer. There you are. Okay, see another P. Um, It seems obvious, really. But can I ask you a question? When your heart is troubled, when your soul is vexed, when there's a situation in your life that just isn't as you want it to be, as you're trying to exercise patience, who is the first person you speak to? Who is the first person you speak to? Is it God? Well, well done. Because you can carry on doing that, Jill. Congratulations. That's super. And I, I believe you when you say that. But can I open up and be honest with you? That what I do and what I see most other people doing is A, grumble to themselves, talk to themselves, Talk to someone else who's not involved in the situation at all, just for the sake of airing things. Maybe speak to the people involved. It would be amazing if they did. And then when it feels like we can't do anything else, finally finishing up with God. And it's totally and utterly the wrong way around, isn't it? It's totally and utterly the wrong way around. Like the last port of call. Kind of like our final roll of the dice. I've done everything else I can, so now I'm going to try bringing it to God. What do we see with Hannah? Hannah, she was properly stressed about what was going on in her life. She went to God with it. She went to God with it. And then she had an opportunity to speak to someone else about it when Eli came and asked her. And then presumably she spoke to her husband about it because he seemed to be in the loop with the promise that she made. She was someone who went to God first. And David here in this story and in David and other places in his life, you see he's someone who goes to God quickly. He prays about stuff. He wakes up the next morning when he's had the results of this census. Why was the census such bad news? I know why, but I'm not going to say. And he prays about it. He prays about it. He doesn't go to Job. Job, I've made a big mistake. Um, Destroy those records, pretend it never happened. Confesses his guilt. And then later on, when um, he sees the judgment coming, what does he do? He doesn't say, quick, everybody, the angels stopped everybody inside the threshing floor, quickly. He doesn't give a command like that. He prays to God, Lord, this has got to stop. And if that means it landing fully on my head, then so be it. We see it in the life of Jesus as well, don't we? That he prayed about stuff. God in flesh 
prayed about stuff. He was quick to pray. It was his pattern, his practice, that he began every single day in prayer. When he was about to perform some amazing miracles, he prayed to his Father in heaven. I wonder, do we pray like that? Do we bring our burdens to him? Do we bring our confessions to him? We need to pray. Okay, I'm excited about this last point. Because if we were playing Scrabble, it would be triple word score. Prepare to pay the price. It's the third P and it's got three P's in it. This kind of sounds weird in an evangelical setting, in a church where we speak so much about grace, about receiving freely from God. And yet, like, go with me here. We've got this idea of God's grace being free, which is correct, and we, meet, we equate that with it not being costly. You, it might feel like semantics. Let me just say it again. We, we've got this idea of God's grace being free. We can't earn it. Our favor, our forgiveness, or our fellowship with God, three Fs, they all come totally by grace from Jesus. Even the faith that we have is a gift to us. And somehow that makes us think that it isn't costly. Well, let me tell you, first of all, for us to receive those things so freely, there is a great cost that has been paid, isn't there? Jesus had to shed his own blood. Jesus had to give willingly his own life so that we could have it so freely. So if anybody thinks that grace is cheap, that grace does not come at a price, they haven't looked at the cross. They haven't seen the determination in Jesus to earn that for us. Okay, so that's the first thing. It is not cheap. It comes at a price. But thinking about Hannah at the start and David here at the end, there is a, a price to be paid. There is a price to be paid paid in worshipping and offering and sacrificing back to God for the grace that he's given. Hannah prayed, Lord, in your grace, in your mercy, give me a son. She got it. She didn't have to do anything to get that son. She didn't have to prove herself faithful. She didn't have to get a certain number of signatures on a petition. She didn't have to like, do anything. She just had a trust in God. And God graciously, freely gave her that child. But it was costly. After a couple of years, she had to give that child back in service to the Lord. He went to live and to minister in the tabernacle. Here, David is saying, Lord, relent. Stop. I've done wrong. The people have done wrong. But just, just no more. What, what will it take? And God has already got to this point and said, no more. No more death. But then he commands David... Not in order to, to earn that clemency, not to, in order to earn that grace and that mercy, to offer a sacrifice. And beautifully in this story, David is given the opportunity to make that sacrifice completely and utterly free of charge, at no cost to himself. Do you know what? If that's how the story had gone, I'm sure we could make a hundred wonderful sermons about, there you are, you see it, the price is paid by somebody else. But that's not how the story goes. David says, no, when I offer, when I sacrifice, when I worship, it's costly. God's grace is free. He's not doing it because I've like, found the, 
the answer, the cord, the riddle has been cracked to how I can um, find freedom and happiness and, and forgiveness. They all come to God from God free of charge, and yet there is a cost. And I say we need to recognize that for ourselves, that yes, we get all of these wonderful, true things through Christ absolutely freely. If you think you can be any more accepted by God because of something you have done, then you, again, go check out Jesus, check out the crucifixion. You will see he has done it 100%. And yet the picture of the Christian life isn't one that carries on easy breezy, uh, free and happy, is it? It's one of cost. It's one of continuing sacrifice. Literally, when Jesus was speaking about his own death to his disciples, he says, if you want to be my disciples, you're going to have to pick up your own cross and follow me. When he said to a man who had more wealth than any of us could ever imagine, and he was asking him about eternal life, Jesus didn't say, oh, I've got you, bro. Don't worry about it. You, like, I'm going to die on a cross, and that's how you're going to inherit eternal life. He said, sell it all. Give to the poor. Follow me. He said, like, the grace that I'm giving you is going to be costly, and you need to be prepared to pay the price. Sometimes people will accuse us of putting faith in Jesus or the whole Christian message in the terms of, oh, so if you just believe, then you get everything. And it is like said as an accusation, if you just believe, then you get everything. And in one sense, can, we can say, hallelujah, yes, that is true. All we've got to do is believe, is trust in him, and we do get everything because it's entirely free. But we need to remember those two things, don't we? Number one, that it, that it wasn't free at the point of source. It cost Jesus his own life. He shed his own blood. Those are not just figurative terms. That's not just a metaphor. That is literally what happened. When the Lord, the God, the King of all creation, stepped down, took on flesh, was born of a virgin into squalor, had to flee for their lives to a foreign land, had to become um, refugees, came back at some point, became like um, the son of a single mother, traveled around without two pennies to rub together with people hurling abuse at him over and over again, crucified, died, buried. Like that happened. It was a great, great price. So even when it is we just believe, that just belief isn't cheap. But then the cost of following, like there is a price to pay and we need to be prepared to pay the price. That is not like getting a ticket and, oh, I don't want to cause any offense here, Ingva. Ticket for your cruise liner where you get on the boat and everything is done for you. And you just sit back on the deck. I'm imagining I've never been. I'm quite happy for you to get me a ticket for Christmas. That's fine. And everything is taken care of. Like we're called to sacrifice. Romans chapter 12. Paul has been arguing all of this for ages and ages and ages. And he says, now, therefore... Present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then he gives a, a, a list of ways that he thinks you can do that. Things that aren't cheap, that aren't easy, that are hard for us, that are active for us, but are so worthwhile for us. So patience, prayer, 
prepared to pay the price. That's, I mean, in a sense why I think maybe it is a good ending to the book, even though it will ask, cause us to ask the question, why? Why all of these weird things? It kind of, in a microcosm, shows us a couple of the lessons that we should have learned at the start and should have been learning all the way through and still learn through the life of Jesus and are still proper for us today. That we need to be patient people who pray about stuff. And though we have received so much grace so freely, we should be willing to prepare, we should be prepared to pay the price. Amen? Amen. Right. We'll pray. We'll sing about it. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. But Lord, we also thank you how you teach us and show us and guide us how to live now. Lord, Hannah had experienced your grace so much in her life, but she still looked forward to something more. Help us to be a people who acknowledge the grace that we have experienced. We can see how far we've come, but Lord, are still excited, anticipating and pressing on towards that, that final goal. Lord, change us from a people who speak to ourselves first and then others, and then as a last resort speaking to you. Help us to be a people who come first to you. Lord, I've got a problem with someone. Let me, let me bring it to you and listen. Find out how I should proceed with it. Lord, help us to be a people who are prepared to pay the price, not thinking that we can do something to kind of match fund what Jesus has done for us. But Lord, acknowledging, grasping with both hands everything that Jesus has done. Lord, help us to see how that has set us on a route, on a course, which is to follow him, to willingly, to gladly, to joyfully sacrifice for others, for you. Lord, sometimes we sacrifice for our own goods. Help us to be willing to prepare, uh, be prepared to pay the price. Thank you for the book of Samuel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your love, your kindness, your mercy. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.